Welcome to Build with Rob. I am Rob Deerdeck, CEO and founder of the Deerdeck Machine, a one-of-a-kind venture creation studio where we systematically fuse art, science, and magic to manufacture amazing companies. Not only do we create amazing companies with amazing do-or-die founders, but we also advise amazing do-or-die entrepreneurs that we may never build a company with, but we love helping them, giving them insight, giving them ways to think about their business, giving their ways to think about their life, all aspects of their existence, because it all adds up to success. It all adds up to happiness. You know, and, and at the end of the day, you know, I just love talking to anybody who wants to talk to me about entrepreneurialism. I mean, just any aspect of it. You know, I, I just really love it. Uh, I, I love doing this show, love talking to entrepreneurs, love hearing their ideas, love, love doing research on their ideas. I love spending the time understanding um, like why they created the idea, looking at the market, looking at what they've created already and, and kind of gathering some, some thoughts and things that I can share that I think, you know, hopefully uh, can help you know, either reposition sort of where they're at, give them another sort of point of view of somebody that has a lot of experience in what they're trying to do or, um, you know, experience in business itself that can kind of help shape what they're doing and, and give them a, a, a push towards success. Because again, that is uh, when business is at its best is when it's working. It is always so much fun when it's working. It is a nightmare and total chaos when it is not, you know, and, and I think a lot of times, you know, you know, a, a huge believer in that, that the foundational work that you do with your business and brands and everything that you do at the very beginning of when you start the company is is so much more important than you realize. You know, it, it's why we have the machine method and the discovery and diligence and build phases before the launch phase and the skill uh, scale phase, right? And yeah, obviously, the discovery phase is about like, you know, the just the idea because it's like like the ideas. It's always the most exciting. You know, you're always like, oh, that's such a good idea. Like, and, and to validate that it's a good idea, you, you got to do the research. And, and it's not, it's not like boring, like, oh, it's like research, like an accountant, you know, or however you, you look at it. It's really, really getting a, a broad look at the concept and things similar to it and the consumer and, and, and its potential and, and, its uniqueness in the space, its its potential value proposition, and how that connects to the consumer, um, its its the uniqueness, the defendableness of that that value proposition, all these different things. You want to really know about that to validate just your idea, you know. And and then when you get into the diligence phase, you know, now now you really like an idea. Now, like, really go make sure that it's real. You know, spend the time to learn all aspects about that business, whether it, you know, from the cost structures and and how competitive it is and 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 ultimately, 
you know, every everything that it'll actually take to make it a successful business and what does success look like? We do that in that phase. And then we decide, okay, let's do it. Um, now it's time to, to build it, right? And again, in, in each of these phases, you're learning so much and the ideas being shaped and evolved and you're, you're, you're getting to a much deeper, clearer, better version of your original idea as you're going through this process, you know, and this isn't a proprietary process for, for us or anything else. This is just like, do a bunch of research, then learn everything about the idea and like really dedicate some time to learn and then make sure you build uh, that idea super thoroughly before you launch it. That's not proprietary. That's just being smart and methodical, right? And, and one thing that, that you know, I, I, I love this day and age that I think is often overlooked is, is how you name your brand. And a lot of people will tell you that, you know, a name is, is insignificant at the end of the day, like the brand and the marketing and what it becomes, uh, actually, um, becomes what the brand is. You know what I mean? What is a Google? What's a Google, you know? And, uh, I'll tell you what Google is. It's a verb. It's a verb now, you know what I mean? But if it was like, ricochet ricochet what am i gonna do i'm about to uh, oh man let me go like like how many stars are there in the universe let me ricochet it real quick you know what i mean like it's it's not that a a brand necessarily has to have a name that is like right on the nose but it is it is really um seamless and a much more impactful, especially this day and age where you are essentially a brand and a media company as one, that 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 either your your brand name really connects with the value proposition of your product and the way that you create your media and and how you've developed your brand also connects with that value proposition like that's when it, it the harmony of your brand story can can really come alive across multiple platforms and and I think a lot of people you know um overlook how when you do it right it can it can really make an impact on creating the feeling that you want your brand that you have a vision for uh, to feel like and come alive you know and, and i would i i you know a couple examples of recent builds that we've done you know is is mind right you know and and when we looked at you know what is adaptogens and nootropics ultimately uh, you know, they, you know, it enhances your mood, gives you energy and focus, right? That, that's, that's really what the value proposition of taking what was, you know, primarily in supplement form and now putting it into food, right? And for us, like, as we were looking at all of these different name types, you know, originally it was like feed your brain and like happy brain and all of these different things as we were, we were leaning into, to the brain, um, aspect of trying to develop and looking at all these different sort of things. Um, you know, and I, I always love when, when the value proposition of your product can be turned into a verb and then that word represents that output, right? And mind right is, 
is that in its purest form? You know, like mind dried is is something that we all like um, is a part of our life. People have you said you hold on before I start this, I got to get my mind right. So getting mind right is already. Um, you know, this thing that is in our ethos and that that connects back to the value proposition of the product and it's a verb. And then what did it do? It immediately lent itself to um, the way that we would create media and how we could create content around what it meant to be mind right. And then the scalability of of that name into um, you know, using the product under almost any use case scenario from breaking up with your girlfriend to being a firefighter, getting ready to be, you know, uh, go fight a fire to getting ready, a business person to go do a big presentation. You know, you take that bar and get mind dry before you go fight a fire, get mind dry before you break up with your girl, get mind dry, you know, before you do that big presentation, get mind dry like that. You can, by me just saying it, you feel the energy of how a name, the value proposition of the product and the media all come together as one, you know, and, and, you know, I'm, it, it doesn't always work so clean like that, but it is, you know, it is very special when it does, you know, and, and in the case for something like Luso Cloud, like we knew that. Like, you know, we're building this premium luxury uh, comfort brand that we didn't want it to like, you know, land like so uh, directly on the nose, you know, like if we would have called it like comfort ease, you know what I mean? We we knew that we wanted there to be like a brand that had a little bit more elevated aspect of it. And so when when we went to choose the name, we we wanted the name to feel comfortable, you know, and, and Luso, like when you when you hear it, it sounds like soft and comfortable. Luso, and and um, cloud is basically, you know, sort of synonymous with this this weightlessness and soft and fluffiness, right? So together, Luso cloud it it, it embodies embraces and embodies the value proposition of everything that we make in that that in the business which you know we call it comfort nirvana right where we're trying to basically make footwear that takes comfort to a complete uh another a complete other level right and so you can see where it wasn't that like, hey, is that a cool word that'll work together? You know, it, it was really about like, how do you make the feel and the sound connect to what the value proposition of everything that we make is going to be? And then when we design the look and feel, it's this beautiful, soft, bubbly uh, font that we use. So so when you hear it, Luso Cloud, like, and when you see it, it, it already connects to that value proposition about what and how uh, we're trying to deliver, which is that comfort. So, you know, don't just look past what the name of your brand is and just be like, oh, it's like, you know, it's the street I grew up on that my parents raised me on. It's, it's not necessarily about the story, but it's like, how does the sound, the name and what it is actually tie back to the product service that it provides and the value proposition that it gives because it, it just feels so much better and is so much easier to connect with, build content around and ultimately 
uh, build customers behind. Okay, just a little thought. Uh, one of my favorite things is naming brands, and and when they come together, it's always just it's so such a joy. Nothing. It's something that I just absolutely love to do, and look forward to doing it over and over for the rest of my life. And I also love to talk to entrepreneurs about their businesses and, and answer their questions and help give them insight that I learned throughout the years of building all these companies. So, without further ado, let's bring in our very first guest. Hi there. Uh, my name is Tyler Boone. I'm a serial entrepreneur located here in Los Angeles, California. I'm also a singer-songwriter. That's where my career started. Uh, I have over 10 million streams. Uh, it's just something cool to show. Uh, so far, all independently, I get about now a quarter million to half a million a month. I know I would love to work at Dirt Egg Machine because you guys are proving uh, you guys are using social media the correct way. You guys are building incredible brands. And uh, just huge fans of uh, Rob Durdeck. Uh, I love how he's a VC after he was an athlete to, to celebrity to now helping young people like me to achieve our dreams. So thank you. Tyler Boone, welcome to Build with Rob. How are you? Great, man. Thanks so much for having me. Man, look at all of those empty bottles of Boone's bourbon, man. <laughs> I try not to drink at home. So when they're empty, that they stay empty. Oh man, it's like I love I love the idea. Is this like a white oak barrel that it's like aged in, or like, or is this just for show? This is just for show. We sponsored a a cool thing in Los Angeles called Jam in the Van, and so this used to sit on their stage. It was like a comedy music venue. It was cool. Okay, look, you know, like give us just the the, the quick overview of of Boone's Bourbon and and sort of the evolution of the business and what it where it is today. Yeah, man. So uh, I started the idea. Uh, in 2015, when I was living in Nashville, um, I had like a big country deal, but I don't even play country music. I don't know why they were offering it to me, but it was a big management deal. And uh, some guy, you know, I had all these meetings because of the deal, not because of my music, right? And so some guy came along, it's actually my friend's dad. And he's like, hey man, you should put a spirit through name on it. You figure it out. I'll pay for it. And I was like, oh, word, this would be really good for my career. And so long story short, he never had the funding, right? And I was like, well, dude, I just figured this this out. And so I went back to Charleston, South Carolina, where I'm from, launched it with a distillery called Stripe Pig Distillery because the last thing I needed, and you have a whiskey brand, is there's licensing, right? Like we're dealing with Texas at the moment, trying to get this all finalized. And so they're like, hey, dude, like we're you know doing okay, but you know we we're trying to get more business going. We'll give you our licensing. I was like, oh my God, that's the last piece. And so we launched in my hometown and that was 2018. And I live in Los Angeles, as you can see. But uh, in three years, man, we're about to be in like 37 states. So it's kind of exploded. It's really cool. So- that's how it started. And, and look, you know, I commend you because it's the absolute hardest thing in the world to do is launch a bourbon, you know, really any hard liquor, <laughs> period. You know what I mean? It's like you, especially when you're young and like having an alcohol brand just seems amazing. For sure. And then like you like, oh, it's like, you know, you can go and source and, and, you know, find a manufacturer, like a distillery that'll like, uh, help you shape it into the perfect bourbon. But somebody mm-hmm. uh, at some point along the way, you realize the pain of like a oh, three tier system. What? Like, and it's like, Oh, what? You got to have a license in every single state. Like what? Totally. Like you can't even mm-hmm. move it. It's a, a very difficult industry to learn. Right. It's like, sure. and, and it's, and a lot of people, especially in the venture capital world, they get uh, sucked into the idea of the multiple. It is 10 times revenue. 
It is 10 times revenue. All those beautiful stories you hear of these big acquisitions that happened by Diageo are 10 times revenue. You just don't understand how difficult it is uh, and how capital intensive it is to scale an an alcohol brand. And if you can get to scale, that means you penetrated uh, their marketplace. And they don't mind if you come in and steal market share from them because they will then just buy you because you created something worth purchasing and then scale you, right? Like sure. like the actual startups of the alcohol space are the incubators for you know the big few that buy every single one of the brands. So I look, I commend you even even on the journey as you've been been evolving it and, and getting into it. And, and I also, I have a ton of respect for you know you know how articulate you are how much of a vision you have for like your whole universe and how do i monetize all aspects of myself and own all of that which is the gift and the curse right a gift and the curse right it, it forces it's much more rewarding and if it really blows up then you reap all the rewards but it's a lot more hard work and it has a lot more unknowns than like, you know, getting a major record label deal or God bless getting, you know, partnering with a major distributor to to build and sell the whiskey. But the beauty of what you built sure. is you could do either of those at any time. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely, man. And, and look, your passion, right? The idea of like driving to the 117, 8, 117% proof, is that really, is it like drinking fire? I mean, what do we drink? Is that like... No, so like it's daunting if you're not like a high proof drinker, right? But we actually kind of have a process that's a little proprietary. I don't know if you ever heard of this, but uh, we now source it from MGP from Indiana, which, you know, Tito's is now MGP, all the big brands are, because how could every bottle be at every store and bar in every city, right? It doesn't make sense. So everyone sources when you start getting bigger. And so we now do that. Uh, same mash bill though, 75 corn, 21 rye, four barley, and 58.5 ABV, 117, right? But this is pretty cool. And so with the partnership with Stripe Pig Distillery, my business partner, Pixie Paula, she uh, is like majority shareholder of a company called, uh, used to be called Terracentia, now they're called Green River, and they just left Charleston to Kentucky, which is better for the bourbon business to say you're from Kentucky, right? And it's called fast aging. Have you ever heard of that before? Well, I I, I wrote it on my list of things that I thought was the most fascinating of your entire <laughs> product because of the well, sonic wave and the seven age, yeah. seven year age in six months. But yeah, like, like tell me about, like, I, that's a Another thing that I just love about how much you love the product and and even found the process. And again, I, I jumped over you on like what it is. But yeah, I, I thought, damn, that's amazing. Like because it, it you know, like if, hey, it's going to be much cheaper to be able to do it in six months. But to give it the quality of seven years is where it's it stands apart. And that's how you're going to go out and win these awards and do all the other stuff that make the real bourbon drinkers like really love it. You know what I mean? For sure. And is that what happened with the the, the way that it performed for like, and did she share that with you and be like, hey, do you want to try this? What what led to you even being able to try that? So that that was that was just her idea. She's like, hey, I want to try something. This was like 2018. Well, first we launched on our own, right? Me and my father did. And then uh, two months later, she bought Stripe Pig and approached us because, hey, you're a musician. You tour a lot. How about, you know, we do a deal where she doesn't own any equity, but she goes, but uh, I pay cost of goods. I get 49% of all your sales. And then I get my, you know, my cost of goods back. Mm. She goes, but I got an idea. Let's fast age it. And so it, we think in the bottle, it's got the characteristics of both of a young and an, and an old. And so 
it kind of has this different taste to it where we keep winning like all these international awards, like top six world in Forbes. And we just won platinum Los Angeles, double gold, New York. And so uh, I, I guess we kind of maybe stumbled across some, but the thing is though, man, is we want to do the barrels. We want to do like the, the 13 year and the seven, the yeah. real awesome stuff. But, but this is just us trying to build the brand. And so if it was just a six month, people would be like, Oh, it's too young. It's too green. And then all of a sudden with this, they're like, Oh, Oh, dude, that's really smooth. And so you're asking earlier, like, why 117? Well, I'm telling you, man, you have like two cocktails. You won't notice it, but you'll be definitely drunk. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, I, I look, I'm such a highly optimized human being that, like, e- even like, I, I, if I drink two glasses of wine, it will like affect my ability to like execute at a super high level for like two days, right? So when I, <laughs> if I drink like tequila. Right. Like I will put hydration mix electrolytes in a tequila and drink it with water so that I'm at least fighting, uh, like forget about enjoying the taste of the liquor. It's just like, okay, I'm going to get, I'm going to get this, I'm going to get drunk off tequila, but I'm going to like, like fight the long-term damage that it's going to do to my productivity (laughs) and how I execute into, into the following week. Yeah. It's, it's tough for me. That's awesome. To even, even manage alcohol. I I have to track it. And I could tell you every time I had a drink this entire year, you know, in some months, you know, it's beautiful because it's like, I track it the, I, I track it to where it's like how sober I was each month. So it's like, you know, it's a percentage of, and I track, if I have one drink, I give myself just a negative I drank. And last year it's like, you know, I started off the year and it was like 5% sober. That means I had like a glass of wine, like every night, you know? And, and when I looked back at my output, I was like, man, like the only way for you to really reach like the, the high level is you got to like, you got to get to 80% sober. And, and sure. that was what my gamified life of discipline evolved to this year to where like now it's like I flipped to the other side where you know how you get you, how, how it's long day. You just need a nice uh, Boone's bourbon to like relax. Like I finally transitioned to where like I can just burn it off and, and not lean into my, my tasty and delightful alcohol, which for, for me was, Absolutely. you know. You know, primarily wine, despite being partners in, in black feather whiskey, you know, but yeah, what, what, what do you got for me as far as questions, man? I know you're really sophisticated. You really work hard. I, you know, I really appreciate how you're approaching building businesses and your music career and, and being an artist and representing yourself and just everything that you're doing. I, I think you're doing it the, the right way. And you're, you're building the most invaluable long-term skills and experience that will be pay dividends to you forever. You're growing in a, in a right direction that I think will, will lend to, to not only allowing you to maximize your, yourself long-term, but also get better and better at, at being an example of how to bring in other people and help them max, maximize themselves and monetize them and in other brands and everything. Since you're really, really, really pushing it through. But, I, but I, I'm so curious about your questions, man. Yeah, man. Well, thank you so much, dude. Um, well, first question is where I, I, I ask a lot of other entrepreneurs or business people or finance people where, you know, what do you think is the safest and smartest way to start a business? Should you have your back against the wall first, where it's just you funding it, figuring it out, or should you go out and go raise a whole bunch of capital and then start? Yeah. I mean, look, and I, I do it all different types of ways, right? And mm-hmm. and depending on 
what the long-term strategy of the business is, um, is the right answer, right? Because I don't, I, I like bootstrapping, you know, and, and there's a lot of different, uh, um, theories on like resourcefulness when you, when you don't ha- have access, you know, uh, but I've seen it go both ways. You know, people that have had capital and really been able to put it to work and maximize it and create value and, and grow a business quickly uh, versus people that are super resourceful and just have a really small business, you know. And here's here's the difference between the two. When you bootstrap it and it's it's you using your other stuff to fund it, there's no one to answer to and nobody's looking for a return. When you invest in it and build it and build it your way, nobody's looking for a return. And the moment somebody invests in it, they're looking for a return. And so to me, you know, you can find a uh, a strategic, a high net worth individual, you know, somebody that is really just loves you, loves the product. It's more of what I'd consider a social investment and like, Hey, let's, let's grow this thing into scale one day. Maybe we sell it. Maybe we don't, maybe we turn around and, you know, we just, it's, it's, you know, a project for life. Now that's depending on which way, like for someone like you, it's like, if, if you're like, Hey, I want to, uh, really show that I can build and sell a brand and this is going to be one of many that I do, then I think you you look to go raise capital, right? Because then now you're put to the fire when you create a plan that says, we're going to now go from this many cases to this many cases, and here's how we're going to get there. We're going to take this money, and this is where it's going to go, and then we're going to need this much money, then this is where it's going to go, and then that's when Diageo wants it, right? Like, For sure. I think that's when you take on the type of capital that invests in alcohol brands and that ultimately can be strategic in helping you on that path of building that business to get a return if that is sort of your your vision for for the opportunity but when it when it's about creating an exit all, all day all day raise capital right because then you're aligned because you know all you're all you're doing is it someone's investing in you because they think they can get a 10 to 20x on their money instead of getting you know seven or eight percent in a normal investment you know 20 30 percent in private equity you know whatever it may be so um to me that's uh something that i think about and for you what do you think i mean are you on some like hey like I think I'm ready to take on investment capital and I do want to try to scale it. And do you have the time given all the things that you do to be able to put that energy in there to to be on top of monitoring that that capital investment? Well, we just started and we just started accepting investors today, actually. So we got we got all the wire instructions and you know, we have a term sheet, it's a convertible note. Um, and uh, you know, we got the deck. But uh, we just started today, man. So we're doing one point five at a seven million seven million cap. And then uh, we're going to keep going after that. But it's all been just me and my father's money. And so I work all the time because I have to keep funding it. Like we just sponsored Metallica's festival in Louisville. That was a lot of money, you know? So, but it got us in with RNDC in Kentucky. So it's kind of like, you have to do it, but you're like, dude, if we don't have the capital, I'm going to be doing 15, 18 hour days all the time. So no, yeah, we're, we're trying to raise and I'm not a finance guy, but I'm learning a lot. And it's like super exciting when someone's like, Hey, I want to put money in. You're like, well, we we started a brand that people want to put money in. Yeah. It's really cool. So, yeah, yeah, hey, yeah. look, I'm, you know, I didn't raise money 
until I was like, you know, 38 years old. I had basically, you know, my skate career, the businesses that I started, like ev- like TV, everything that I had built, I had financed myself. I'd never had like mm-hmm. an investment partner in anything. I didn't really even understand it, how it even worked. And when I was approached by an investment banker who I thought at the time was a someone that worked with high net worth clientele at banks, uh, because I had never heard of an investment banker, I was 38. And when they explained to me that my professional skateboarding league that I funded and cash flowed myself uh, was worth 25 to 30 million on a multiple of its revenue, I was like, what? Like, we're, <laughs> we're not even profit. Like, we did like, you know, seven and a half million in revenue. How could that be worth? Why, who would call that 28 million? Right. Like, I didn't sure. even understand. And it was extraordinarily eye-opening, right? And when I took on capital for the first time, you know, and, 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 and it was exciting and boy, I, I, I fell in love with it and, and chose it as a mastery. You know what I mean? It's like now the level of sophistication of how I manage capital staging of businesses and how I co-find them and put in the first few hundred thousand at 800 pre-money in preferred stock and then manage sort of the capital stages of the following rounds and invest in each of those depending on the success of the business and manage it at this very sophisticated level, not even 10 years later when I didn't even know what it was. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I love it for you it just from... Um, hearing you talk and 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 just even hearing you say like boy it is exciting and and, and look and I think seven and a half cap and one and a half is is you know given the, the revenue that you've been able to to create is is plausible right I I think it's now a matter of like what is that growth plan mm-hmm. and how do you really hit those numbers because the the truth is is the moment. You got basically one and a half rounds to create growth, significant growth, right? So that if you, because you're going to get caught in this, this zone of needing more capital because you invested in more to grow. And like, if you invested in more to grow more bodies, uh, getting it in more places, uh, sales reps, all these different things. And then you're not getting the sell through and, and not driving the revenue. And now your burns way higher. Yeah. It's not your money, but now it's like, you didn't get the growth. Now you get caught in a situation where like, Hey, we've, we have made this growth. Okay. We got to do another, you know, a million at the same round price right now. You can see your dilution going and there's, there's a point where it kind of tips, you know, where now it's growing, but you're basically working for the investors because your your uh, dilution along the way um, mm-hmm. just pinned you. So it's just, you know, it's not something to deter you. It's something for you to really think about that, that really, um, you know, build a great story, but build a believable story that creates value for the company and that you know you can go and do. You know what I mean? Like, I I think that's like in the early days when we pitched Street League, you know, we were just laughing, you know, when we shot the podcast with Brian Atlas, who's now the CEO of the Deer Dick Machine, like we built Street League together. And when we took money out, um, we took it to raise out like the third year, we were like, we're doing a hundred, you know, 25 million in revenue. And it's like, we had like six clothing lines and, you know, energy drinks, you know, like it was the most unrealistic like <laughs> absurd 
like business model ever. And and it's and it's funny because like people would look at us, people would pass and we'd be like, they just don't get it. They just don't get it. And it's like, no, they're being nice that you just presented something that's totally unrealistic. And they know that you don't have the mm-hmm. ability uh to execute that. So it's just, just definitely something that I would I would think about is get that money and find that one body that you know can help accelerate um, a path to bigger revenue um, and, and you could be off and running, you know, because I think given your ability to create content and music and, and sponsor tours and festivals and all these things, like you can really connect to an audience that that distributors and retailers like and, you know, in-store stuff and supporting all that. I think there's just a lot that you could do to scale it. And why not? How old are you? I'm 31. Yeah. I mean, this is the time. You know what I mean? This yeah. is the time. You know what I mean? 31. I've been doing all these businesses for all this year. I'm ready to, I'm, I don't want to spend my own money more. I want to take on some capital and scale. Yeah. I, I like it. I think it, I think you'll learn a lot and, and man, a couple left turns and you hit a home run, you know, and you don't got to, you don't got to scale tremendously to, to hit a home run. You just got to make a dent, um, that, that somebody knows that, okay, this matters and we can scale this. We can take it from here. So we'll pay you a pretty multiple for it. Ryan Reynolds and his aviation gin, you know, 200 yeah. million, I think last year. Oh, say it again. What did he do? I think it was 200 million exit with yeah. Diageo with yeah. aviation gin. Yeah. But, but you got to think like, you know, it, you know, you're, you're still talking about 20, 30 million in revenue. And if I'm not mistaken, aviation was cooking and then they put him on top of it. Right. And, yeah, yeah, they, and, they brought him in. You know what I mean? And and they it was just one irresistibly shareable viral video with a superstar and boom. Mm-hmm. And and you want to know who it hit? It hit all the every tier in that distribution. Right. They're like, oh, this is so great. Like, yeah, let's bring this in. Right. Now it's like, you know, and now sure. you got Ryan Reynolds in the POP, like, oh, now we're getting sell through. Like, boom. Like it, it was more than enough for what Diageo needs to see, especially if they get Ryan Reynolds along with it. You know what I mean? So oh, yeah, I, I I'm I think, you know, thinking about those as as pathways, but also how can you replicate the things that that actually drove uh, that opportunity for them and, and scaled that, like, um, that allow that acquisition to happen, you know? And you had one more question for me, man. Yeah. So it's, it's about what you were mentioned earlier when you were, you know, an athlete to then you start your business. Uh, when did you finally realize, cause it took me for a minute to realize for just doing the music thing and my other company, um, which is a music company. But when I was like, dude, I think I'm an entrepreneur. Like, when did you like, hey, dude, I think I'm an entrepreneur. This is what this is who I am now. I when did you when did that ding for you? Well, well, look, give me a little bit more clarity on the ding for you. Was it like you were an artist and then you just you had this opportunity to create sort of the artist management or artist representation, and then you said, "Hey, I'm gonna go do this and rep myself," and that was the beginning. Your was that your first company? Uh, is it, so it's called Artist Formula. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a beast. It's it takes up all my time. But my one of my best buds, Sean, he used to be a part of like McGee, like Kiss and Vintage Trouble, all these big bands. We started it together uh, as like a digital company for Spotify, Instagram, YouTube, all this incredible stuff uh, just to do it. Like, hey, you know, we couldn't get jobs in Nashville. No one wanted to hire. (laughs) So we started our own company and then all of a sudden everybody wanted it, especially last year. That's when we blew up because of COVID. Right, because there was no touring, so all these bands like, how do I promote myself? We're like, well, these are these are real services because there's a lot of bad stuff out there, and so um, 
I mean, dude, now I, now I'm like, I, I wear it like a badge. Like, yeah, I started that when I first did, I was like, yeah, I got this other company does this and that. So it kind of took a minute, but then when all of a sudden my in- inbox is like 300 emails a day, I was like, I think this is a business. So I, I, I would say last year is when I realized for sure. Look, there ain't no ding. You know, I, I just made a video where it was like, you know, uh, people always ask me, Rob, how do I know if I should be an entrepreneur? You shouldn't, you shouldn't, if you got to ask, you shouldn't. Right. And it's the, in, in what I'm saying ultimately is, is you were presented with this opportunity, like, well, I see I could do this and I could make money at it. I don't have a job. That's being an entrepreneur. You know what I mean? And just because you don't, uh, you know, the guy that started Uber, it was like a side hustle before it wasn't, you know what I mean? Like, and a lot of people wouldn't invest in him early on because it was like, Hey, I'm doing this thing on the side. It's like black cars. Like, you know, you want like a limo car, you can get it, you know? And people are like, ah, it's like his side hustle, uh, before all of a sudden it's like the biggest company in the world. But it's, you know, I, I think, you know, for me, when I was, even though I started my first company when I was 17 years old, I was raised by entrepreneur wolves. You know, I, I the same way that my kids are like already pitching me business ideas and he's five. My son pitches me business ideas. He's five. And, you know, awesome. it's because he grew up around it, me just constantly talking about all the companies I'm doing and how much I love companies and how much I love working and sharing with him everything. The same way I grew up around entrepreneurs, uh, the guy that owned the skate shop. And then I just assumed like, man, I see him starting all these companies. I started my first company right when I got to California when I was like 17, 18 years old, you know? So, uh, it it was just sort of, I think for the most part, people, you either really want to do it or you discover it through, through an opportunity like you did. And then, then you begin to understand it and see other opportunities that you would like to capitalize on based off of, of what you have learned and what you see as the potential of being an entrepreneur. But, you know, when you're uneducated and, you know, you, you drop out of high school and you consider yourself an entrepreneur, but you're really, you're, you want to be a pro skateboarder, you know, in my early days of business, I didn't even want, I thought it was bad for my skate image to, to talk about all the business I was doing. Right. Cause like, you know, we're, you know, skateboarding was like, we're in the streets, you know what I mean? Like there's sort of like a respect to like, like style and who you are and, and how you skated. But so I thought like, you know, it was like, I didn't want to overly talk about business cause then I seemed like some like normal, like business suit guy, you know what I mean? And, and of course that, that, that evolved pretty quickly as, as I got a little bit older, but look, I, I, I think you, you got something really cool. I think you're doing all the right things. I can, I can tell you're evolving and learning the right way. And, and, um, I, I think there's no doubt that, that if you keep doing what you're doing, you're, you're going to find great success. And, and I, I love the fact that you're raising capital and look, you go out, build this thing and sell it. And then let's get together again. Let's talk about what the next idea will be, you know, combine forces. Here's all my experience. And now your next vision and boom, we could, we could do it in an accelerated fashion. You know what I mean? Dude. That'd be, that's, that's the plan. Do it and then keep going. You know what I mean? Don't just like go have vacation for the rest of your life. So that's yeah, it. Man, absolutely. That's it. Let it be a part of your life. Like it's part of mine. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Pleasure to meet you, man. I wish you the best. I look forward to seeing it, seeing it grow. Awesome. Thanks so much, Rob. All right. Take care. Timmy Wozniak, Kevin Dunn, welcome to Build with Rob. How are you guys? Good. How you doing, man? Doing good, man. Man, look, it's just a group of guys trying to make, make the dream come alive in the footwear space. 
You know what I mean? It, right. You want to know what I'm so impressed? It's so hard to actually go out and get, like, take a design from paper, have a vision for a piece of footwear, and then actually hold that thing in your hand. It's like the most extraordinary experience ever. You know what I mean? I'm impressed to just see you guys like e- even get to, even get to that mark is is always so extraordinary. Uh, but tell me, tell me about the commissioner, man, what, the vision and how you guys sort of, you know, decided to create it and ultimately where you guys are right now. Yeah, absolutely. So basically, Kevin, myself and the other two co-founders, we all met at uh, the University of Oregon in a master's program uh, for sports product management. Um, and so it all really started as just like a school project, capstone, um, you know, type deal. But like the four of us from the beginning all kind of were, you know, connected by, you know, sneakers, culture, uh, you know, music, basketball, all those things kind of intertwined. And so when we were tasked with like building this concept and brand, um, we all were looking for like different elements of, you know, both brand story and product story that we can, you know, tie in together uh, you know, for this project. And we all kind of grew up in that era of, you know, the NBA, David Stern instituting the dress code, uh, you know, back then. And uh, essentially, we, you know, kind of took that story and built this initial brand around it and came up with what is now the David Stern one, the DS, we're calling it the DS one. Hey, look, and did the DS, uh, is so, David Stern's like, like, do you got to get this approved by David Stern? <laughs> So that's a, that's a good, that's a really good question because yeah. we actually had a, you know, kind of a, a legal class within our master's program that talked a lot about this. And the, the person that headed off that class, uh, the professor per se, was a former Nike legal counsel. So they couldn't really give us any specific advice, uh, legal advice in terms of that, but we've been working with our own legal team. And technically, once Commissioner Stern passed away, all he lost all rights to using his name in according to like new york and federal law um but to say like as a company we want to do the right thing yeah um and so we're initiating those discussions and talking with working with his estate because we want to you know take that angle of doing some sort of like a royalty deal through uh you know pitching it back to some sort of charitable cause that he left within you know uh, his legacy that kind of goes back into the community. Yeah, and I mean, look, I, I think e- even if you, I think even if you, the the spirit of the David Stern, it can just be the DS one. You know, if if it's and the idea of the commissioners, it's it's you know like the leader of the league. You know, so there's still so much of the concept. You know, I I I think. If I was like the Stern uh, family, I'd be flattered. You know what I mean? Because it That's is right, like, right. you know, it's really giving him, he, he obviously he was, you know, hugely significant in, in sort of the evolution of, and just sort of what's happened with, with NBA and fashion and all that stuff, you know? So I, I do see the connection and the word it, at the end of the day, if it's just DS, you it's, it just kind of is what it is. The biggest part too, is like, it's, it's really cool to see what that dress code, the impact that that had on, you know, what fashion is today. And that's where right. we came up with, you know, design for the runway built for the court. Yeah. Cause it's like that walk from the parking lot down, you know, the tunnel into the player's locker room has literally become like a fashion runway. You see it all over the, you know, media. It's talked about, you know, there's Instagram accounts that are super popular, you know, slam magazines, league fits that just tag what players are wearing as they enter the arena. And I think that is also something that's a bit understated about 
you know, what we're doing is that we are um, pro player and we are trying to highlight, you know, kind of the, uh, the um, you know, the, the way that the players kind of got, you know, the raw deal in all of that with the dress code and kind of, you know, being that black eye on the league. And we're trying to show support for the players while also um, really highlighting that legacy of David Stern and the NBA. Yeah. And, and look, you know, I, I'm I, I li- it's an original thesis in footwear. Right. You know, so so in obviously footwear is is highly competitive and there's got to be some like, you know, differentiation and, you know, it, it's this hybrid luxury playable vibe, but it's it's expensive. Right. That 350 banger, um, you know, puts a 350 narrows the the line of people that can ultimately buy it. You know what I mean? Like, it, you know, as opposed to the the, the 150 range of of the scale of that sort of zone. And why, why did you guys decide to make it so expensive? Absolutely. So, you know, first of all, it's some of it comes down to costs. We really wanted to make it like, you know, that hybrid high end, you know, we're using really high quality materials. And then we're also building in a, a very unique, you know, packaging experience as well as using some like RFID technology for anti-counterfeiting, um, you know, measures like that. So we wanted to really like do it right out the gate and not use, um, you know, very, you know, standard materials. So we wanted to give that like Louis Vuitton experience in terms of like, you know, quality and craftsmanship, but, you know, not, you know, not, not that super high price point that they charge, um, you know, for a high end luxury. So being really between there and, uh, you know, like a, a Jordan one, um, so to speak. So that's really, you know, the, the reasoning behind it and our target consumer that we, you know, identified and did a lot of consumer insights on throughout the uh, process of uh, our master's program was, you know, basically identifying a lot of folks within like the sneaker resale game. Yeah. So they, you know, do are making a hundred K plus a year. They have secondary sources of income that they're bringing in from, you know, reselling stuff. Uh, You know, it's, it's a five, $5 billion industry as well. So, you know, just on, on the sneaker side of it. So, our scarce exclusivity, you know, model in terms of like forecasting that we're running, um, you know, for this specific shoe and our go-to-market plan is, you know, fits and is very feasible to prove, you know, within, you know, that, that target. Yeah. And and look, I am, the market will tell you, you you know, it's like, you know, even when we launched Luso Cloud, right. We, we really wanted a high margin product. And when we did the research, we saw, you know, sort of an opportunity to, to make a, a, a better, uh, more, more sort of versatile version of, a of, uh, Birkenstocks, Uggs, Crocs. And we saw sort of a white space and the pricing between sort of, you know, the $75 slide cheap, like blown EVA Croc, and then like a Gucci slide at like, you know, two, two fifty, three hundred, and and one fifty was the sweet spot for us, but we weren't sure, right? We just weren't sure if it would be like you know one thirty five, one fifty, what the what the price was, and 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 we didn't know till we got into market that it that we could really get there. But we we grew into it slowly and had backup plans to have a ninety nine dollar version and and even a blown EVA version at like sixty five that we'll eventually launch. But even for us, you know, we build businesses on the regular. We went and built that with footwear experts, and it's just it's really hard to grow 
footwear straight out the gate. You know what I mean? So it's one thing I, I would think about when you, when you think about that plan, you know, even for us, like we don't really expect to hit a hundred thousand pairs until like 2024, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's the idea of trying to build a model and a business around 25,000 pair drops, you know what I mean? I, I just think is a, is ambitious and difficult, right? Just setting your setting yourself up versus like starting with, hey, we're gonna drop a thousand. We're gonna do a pair drop and do a thousand and start that resale market and that collectability. Like really try to like build the hype, then go do a collab with somebody, you know, type of thing. Like and then do a limited version of that. Like really try to 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 launch out and begin to. Um, like let that exclusivity grow so that that hype in the resale market and the sneaker world really connects to it is, is just something that as somebody that dances with the devil in the space uh, that, that I think you should really like kind of think about as you present uh, your idea and, and looking for, for investors too, you know? Yeah, no, I definitely appreciate that advice. It's funny too, because we have, you know, obviously folks that are advisors within the industry, guys that were super early on at at Nike, um, you know, just connected through this program we're essentially in. And it's like, we've actually gotten mixed messages on, you know, this right. this very own topic in terms of like forecasting. And so I know like in our initial plan and forecast, like we've put the, you know, 25K out there, but we've, we've, already, we've already scaled that back quite a bit. Yeah. Um, and in terms of, the manufacturer partner that we're working with in China right now, we had to about a month ago make a commitment in terms of capacity with everything that's going on in the supply chain right now. And so we already, you know, scaled that back for our initial launch. And I think that's one of the things that we really discussed a lot early on with uh, exclusivity being one of those key pillars for our company. It's like, how exclusive is too exclusive? How much is, you know, are you cutting yourself off from, you know, from potential business, you know, so we, we continue to have a lot of those conversations, you know, with our, you know, between me and Timmy and also the rest of our partners. And I think that's something that we'll always keep an eye on because we want to make sure that we're hitting that sweet number, that sweet spot, you know? Yeah. And, and look, I really believe that you're better off selling less and having much more demand and leaving some money on the table and making that, making it people hungry for it you know, then, then you are to like make a big order and not sell it. Right. And as long as you keep the cost down and, and don't burn a ton of money and spend a lot on activation and, and even when, you know, like building out like the special presentation as, as the box that you guys built, that's, you know, basically like a, a yacht. I think you guys made a yacht (laughs) (laughs) to, to open it up. It's like, that's built for, you know, 500 pairs, you know, that gets that one. Then you, you know, you have like a premium box and you do that around hype and what it is. Like, I I just think that you want to grow slowly and begin to like, like let the momentum in the, the build organically rather than try to get it, like try to say, Hey, we're going to turn this into a billion dollar business. Cause you got to understand, you know, you're talking about a business that's going to trade at, you know, four or five times revenue. And when you say, you know, Hey, we're going to do hundred K pairs in the first year, uh, 200, 400 in three years, you're worth like 800 million. You know what I mean? And it's like, like, that's the, 
to investors when they see they see it quickly they're like oh like like this is this was as incredibly ambitious and it's a red flag as it relates to their understanding of building a cpg brand right like it's a it's just a capital intensive supply chain issues like so many things that go into managing that level of growth in that amount of time um i think is just something that you you have to be thoughtful of when you present it and and when I when I, and I was deep in the website, I was deep in the website, and you know, because I I love the the way that it feels. I love the way oh how yeah, you got the samples and shot everything. It just it really feels amazing. And, and I saw that there was like you know our first hire is like a CEO. You know what I mean? And yeah, we got him right here. Yeah, too. no, it's it's beautiful, man. Like it really, you really did it. You know, and and to me, it's like, um, you know, but but I but I'm saying like that. Like, and to me, I'm assuming like the CEO is like, Hey, we need somebody with operation experience, someone that's actually ran a footwear business. Is that what you're sort of seeking when you think about launching it? I think part of the, you know, the reason that that's on there is first of all, as you can tell, based on just the feedback that you gave us about, you know, building a CPG brand and understanding, you know, those lofty goals and, you know, what we've set and whatnot is like, especially from an investor standpoint, those are the things that like we can't necessarily, you know, understand or answer. And that like is incredible advice that, that we just got in terms of, you know, we need a CEO who can go and, and forecast that out for us and build it and, you know, kind of keep us in check from a reality standpoint of saying, you know, how many SKUs we can put out in a year and like what's feasible in terms of, you know, the money that we have on hand and stuff like that, because, at the end of the day, from like a financial standpoint, like that's not our strong suit. Yeah. Like we, we're all, you know, we're all creators yeah. and, and essentially marketers. And like, that's, that's the side of it that we really want to be involved in. So from a business standpoint, it's like, okay, who is out there as a CEO that can come, you know, lead us, you know, in the best direction to make those decisions that are obviously going to benefit all of us. Yeah. And look, I think that should be like, man, like, like goal number one. You know, because like even even when we built Luso Cloud, you know, John Buscemi is a, you know, an icon in footwear. OK, you know, you talk about a guy who built a, a shoe brand that was, you know, selling shoes for a thousand dollars when he launched it. Right. And it seemed implausible and it exploded. Right. But he's a creator. He's a visionary. He's amazing. He's a very fun person to build a company with. It's extraordinary, but he's not an operator. Right. So even when we got together and we decided, let's build this, this company, then we saw the opportunity, we did all the research and was like, man, here's the actual opportunity. Then we were evolving it, but we didn't actually begin to, and I didn't cut a check into the business and start building it until we had that operator. Right. And, and he had a relationship with, with an amazing a uh, young executive named Chris Noyes, who came in is now the president of of Luso, and we brought him in before we actually um, began to develop, spend the money, and launch it. So, and it was, and that's through growth, right? That's sort of like in the past, that would have been like, let's just launch it and figure it out as we go, and let's try to raise some money, you know, whatever it may be. But we put in somebody that that could actually operate and run the business, be able to manage all the financial aspects, manage the factories, manage uh, product line development, like optimizing sort of the entire supply chain and bringing all the marketing and actually like bringing the entire thing together so that it could be a sustainable 
business is was huge for us and it's what we do all the time. So, you know, I, I think for you guys, especially because you got the vision, you got the cohort of creatives that's going to go in like, if you were just like, hey, we're going to create everything. We need someone to handle everything else. That's where you're going to fall into that sweet spot. So I think I think that should be something that you guys really, really focus on because then investors will look at look at that person as the person that they can rely on for protecting their money. Because at the end of the day, someone's going to give you money because they think they're going to get a return uh, at a certain level on based off of the idea your vision, your passion, and the opportunity in the in the space. So, you know, I, I I think that's something you guys should definitely think about focusing on in the early stages here. You know, yeah, no, absolutely. absolutely. All right, you got any questions for me, man? We do. I just got. I have a couple about. Obviously, we've talked about. You've talked a lot about you know shoe design in terms of like your experience and entrepreneurial aspirations. So, throwing it back a little bit, like. With your relationship at like DC, like what were your biggest like challenges and obstacles, you know, during that time in terms of like both being a sponsored athlete, introducing new product designs, and then like what were some of like the most successful like or highlights to you during that time? Well, I mean, look, I I mean, you guys sort of, you guys lived it, right? With one sample, right? Where it's like, <laughs> you guys drew it. You were all like, this is sick. And then when that thing showed up for the first time, you were like, why does it look so messed up? What's wrong with this? Like, you know what I mean? You're like, how did this, like, what? Like, you know, and then it's like this process of like getting into like, oh, okay, this is what it, you know, it's like, so, and look, at one point, I got to design my signature shoes, but I love designing shoes so much in the process. At one point, I did a deal with them where I got to go through the same process as the designers, only when, if my shoe got picked, that I would get a royalty on it. So I would design all these incredible shoes. I do these amazing storyboards. And then I would go into the sales meeting and just razzle dazzle the sales team, right? Because it's like, like the pro skater Rob's here. Like, and I'm just, you know, I designed some of the sickest, like fashion forward running skate shoes that were ever made, you know, that, that, you know, sold, you know, I'd say some of them sold probably millions of pairs, right? And at one point I had designed a third of the entire DC line. So I was getting paid off of a third of the line. And when Quicksilver came in and acquired DC, they were like, why is Rob the pro skater getting paid off of 30 shoes. Like they couldn't even understand how like, Oh, well we actually made this deal where like he was allowed to present and he would get a royalty and they, the sales team just ended up picking all of his shoes. You know what I mean? Like, and when they acquired the company, they actually stopped doing it. But you know, for me, they were great operators and a great company. And it, it, I, I was never on the tough side of the business. I got to live in the fun side. I mean, imagine, imagine if all, you got to do uh was design shoes and market shoes and like do all the fun stuff that's basically what my dc experience was so um it it is like dream scenario for for what you guys are doing you know what i mean because it is like where where it is a lot of fun and and obviously um you know a, a lot of success and a lot of you know it's it's a it's a pretty remarkable thing to think that you've you know i probably have have designed you know, 40 or 50 shoes, you know, I had, you know, I don't even remember like 25, 26 signature shoes and probably, probably 30 or 40 other shoes that I designed in there, you know? And, and to me, I tell you what, yeah, I tell you what you can look forward to. 
the day you're in the streets and you just see somebody wearing one of your uh, pieces of footwear, you're just like, you know, it feels like it's like a truly mad, you know, I would equate it to like somebody hearing their song on like the radio, you know what I mean? Like where it's like, well, like somebody wearing, and, and, and I would say even with Lusso, like, and even going through and seeing people wear Lusso's, you know, seeing Post Malone wearing, like buying Lusso's and where we're like, what, you know what I mean? It like, it it's very exciting. So a ton of great memories from there, but, but no real specific challenges. Cause at the end of the day, I was just the athlete and the designer and the marketer uh, who was getting paid a ton of money uh, to live the, live the dream down there, you know, just that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so keeping on um, the subject of you as an athlete, you know, an influencer, could you kind of give us some advice on like prospecting, managing and like creating those endorsement sponsorship opportunities? And are there any examples of uh, potential deals that you might have walked away from and or any reasoning behind, you know, that decision? You know, I, I think it's something you guys should lean into heavy. You know what I mean? And, you know, and, and I don't have any specific players, but there's players that just don't have the deals in place, but still have a ton of earned media and, and are fashion forward, but may not have a big deal from one of the big four, you know, and, and being able to do a royalty deal on not, not their signature shoe, but a signature colorway, you know, a signature, you know, some sort of aspect like the shield that you guys have. I don't know what you guys call it. Like, you know, even, you know, doing special branded versions of those and, and having those be tied to a royalty in perpetuity. So as long as it sales, they, they have the ability to make money from it. Um, I think you should also consider like a, a signature shoe with somebody, you know what I mean? Like it's, you know, for, for us, uh, for me specifically, I had a 10% royalty, you know, they added that 10% to the cost of the shoe. So, uh, you know, it didn't, didn't put pressure on the margin, you know, you're basically charging a little bit more, obviously, if you can, if you can be selling shoes, um, like at 350, but, but imagine this, right. If you're fashion forward and you're really trying to change the game, like imagine you go do a signature shoe with Kyle Kuzma and it's a, but the one that he plays in is 1200, you know? And it's like, whoa, this dude's playing in like the 12, the one he actually plays in is like a $1,200 shoe. It's like, now it's like you got all that margin and it's like limited edition. Now that's creating this bigger hype piece that's like now like the most expensive shoe being played on the court is, you know, the commissioner, you know, the DS1 owed to this guy with the initials DS. And like, you know, it's it's like that's like an earned media cool way to do it and ties back to your thesis. You know what I mean? Of like taking fashion to the court, uh, you know, type of thing, you know. So I am I think there's a lot of ways to do it, but I think it's a must that you guys like find those right partnerships and, and make them happen. And, and you're going to have to give up equity in the company, I think to, to some people at this stage and, or a nice royalty deal so that they know that they ha- have a chance to make some money uh, short term and long term, since you're not going to be able to pay them that, that like a significant amount of money up front or a salary or type of thing, you know what I mean? And, and really it's just to me, if you, if you, it doesn't necessarily matter who it is as long as their style connects with the vision of the brand, right? Meaning 
if it's, you know, some boring, straightforward, like, you know, normal player, and then you're like, oh, we got him in this high fashion boot on the court. It's like, what? Like, it doesn't make any sense versus somebody that may not have the profile of the name, but they are stylish and live uh, live that on and off style court as a pro athlete in a real way. I, I think that that's like who you got to make sure that you target. But I, but I think you make that happen for sure. And and that's going to be, I, I think, the clearest path to get that broader awareness that can take you to the next level. But, you know, there's a brand APL uh, that was out a few years, you know, like 10 years ago or so that had like this, it allowed you to move a little bit faster and jump higher and the NBA banned it. You know what I mean? And it's like, that was like, oh, oh, you know, it created such a hype for the business, you know, the same way of like, you know, you get a, a, a any player playing in the most expensive shoe on the court, especially even if that, forget it, make that thing like five G's and do like a thousand, make, <laughs> make that one like, like snake skin, like, and it's the one all, it'd be like, oh, you know, like just, just smack them across the face on that. Like, I, I think you do something like that. In the beginning, man, now, now, now you're cooking. Now, now you're in a place where like the hype is there and it ties back to the vision. So go for it, man. Just give it all you got. All right. Well, look, it was a pleasure, man. I, I appreciate you guys sending it to me. Um, you know, find that, that, that great operating partner with footwear experience, CEO, start getting these things out in a limited edition, go get an athlete, make a super, the most expensive shoe ever to hit the court. And you're going to win. You're going to get, you're going to get the money so you can go out and have fun and just design and market and have a good time. Okay. Appreciate it, man. Appreciate it, Rob. All right. That is it for our show. Listen, thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of the journey. Uh, I hope you learned some stuff. I know I learned a lot of stuff. I love doing it as always. Uh, wherever you listen to this podcast, make sure you subscribe. If you want to be a part of the Deer Deck Machine, become a machinist. Go to DeerDeckMachine.com and sign up. Be a, be a part of our universe. We'd love to have you. Love to get your feedback. Love to give you some free gear. Maybe let you get some free product. Maybe even bring you on this show. You know, you got an amazing idea. Uh, make a video. You know, upload it, send it to us. You know what I mean? We might build a company together. You might be a real do or dire. Uh, you might even end up on this show. Um, but look, everybody at home, I don't, I, you know, whatever it is that you're doing, just know that you are the visionary of your own existence. That you have to know that you have the ability to create any future you want. You got to put in the effort to create that future. See it, believe it, and do it. Till next time.